Hi, and welcome to episode 48 of Etc. Etc. I'm your host, Aug Stone. There's some very exciting young Southpaw things coming up really soon. I'll be announcing those in the coming weeks. Been pretty busy lately getting all that together. In the meantime, my Nick Cave's Bar memoir sold out at Grimey's in Nashville, which is awesome because that's one of my favorite record stores. Don't worry, they've just ordered more. And some new shops are also stocking the book, Repo Records in Philadelphia and Alibi Bookshop in Vallejo, California. The complete list of where it's in stock is up at my website, augstone.com. I've had a new Young Southpaw story all ready to record for a while now, just been very busy. So for this week's clip, I was telling our guest today about the story C.G. Ramon, which speculates that the famous Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung may have joined the seminal punk rockers for a run of albums during the 1980s. Here's a clip from that. Then there's the whole other thing that people claim that Jung was actually in the Ramones for a while. I mean, for a lot longer than you'd expect, too. I mean, the arguments about this go back and forth and probably will for eons, you know. But I mean, the story goes that when the Ramones released Pleasant Dreams, Jung felt it was time to speak up. You know, for, for dreams, you know. It could be anything but pleasant. And it was a conversation he would also later clarify with the Eurythmics. You know, and so during the European leg of the Ramones tour in November of that year, they found the time to meet up at a Burger King. I mean, Young's suggestion, of course, thinking it might force some sort of unconscious confrontation with the lyrics of, oh, oh, I love her so. And, you know, sources say, I mean, here Joey, Johnny, and the gang were so impressed that they just immediately handed Young a leather jacket and jeans. Magically just his size, too. And from there on out, they got down to some serious work. C.G. Ramon paving the way for C.J. to come through in 89. The band honoring Young right before this happened with naming their greatest hits collection Ramon's Mania. And then C.J. joins the first album was called Brain Drain. And that's almost enough for me to rest my case. But let's keep looking at the facts, you know. I mean, right after this little talk at the Burger King. I mean, some say it was in Spain. And that Mondo Bizarro points to this. You know, others, others claim it would have, without a doubt, been in Germany. But anyway, the next Ramones album was Subterranean Jungle. Young's name right in there, you know. What a better metaphor for the collective unconscious than a subterranean jungle. My goodness, those boys were onto something. And what's the big hit off of Subterranean Jungle or Jungle, however you want to pronounce it? Well, only psychotherapy. If you want to hear more of that, and believe me, there's more. We didn't even get to the part with, you know, Freud and the Buzzcocks. Well, that's all on episode 30 of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. And it can be also found on Decalogue 3, The Roaring Twenties, over at youngsouthpaw.bandcamp.com. There's now 60-plus Young Southpaw stories to sink your teeth into, and plenty more on the way. So let's get to this week's guests, Ari Neufeld and Dominic Appleton of the London dream pop space rock band Breathless. I've been listening to them for, gosh, over 20 years now. My old Boston band, Rockets Burst from the Street Lamps, did a few shows with them in Boston and New York when they came over in 1999, 2000. It's the one time I got to play at the CBGB's gallery. That was pretty cool. And this year, their 1991 album, Between Happiness and Heartache, turns 30. And they're reissuing it on a lovely shade of heartache pink vinyl. 
It was great to catch up with Dominic and Ari and talk about the songs and making that record. And I like where our digressions led us to as well. It's always a pleasure to meet other Wolfgang Press fans. So let's get to it, shall we? All right, we're here today with Dominic and Ari from Breathless. How are you guys doing? Great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing all right, thanks. So Between Happiness and Heartache is going to be 30 years old. Oh, my it? God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're celebrating the anniversary, yes. Excellent. Before we get into the record, the first question I always ask is, do you remember what made you fall in love with music when you were a kid? I remember, yeah. Well, but I don't remember the record. I do remember. My parents bought a music centre and um, it was just a life-changing experience. Suddenly like a decent sound system, a decent record player. And from that day forward I just worked for chores and I bought this is when I was about 13 14 and um just I bought an album every week from then onwards wow it was quite an exciting time as well it was because that was sort of 1977 oh wow um so there was lots of music it was it was all very exciting and albums were like two three pounds and I remember the time I paid pound for Second hand daylight by magazine. I think it was three pounds ten. And that was the first time I paid over three pounds for an album. Oh, wow. But obviously, that was a very, very, very long time ago. <laughs> Ari, do you remember? Um, I remember also getting um, my first record player, which was like so, so exciting. But it was just. It was sort of seeing top of the pops and it was just like a whole other magical glamorous world that I just never thought I'd ever be even a small part of it was just seemed so I don't know kind of life-changing and transformative and everything but yeah I mean when I was listening to music actually in the cradle I mean just you know from when I was growing up as a child I was just totally obsessed with music and have been ever since Mm. same here <laughs> <laughs> do you remember what was there a moment that you decided that this was what you wanted to do with your life oh uh, probably but i think it, i mean i was probably i don't know about six or seven or something but it was <laughs> it was it didn't seem like a realistic thing it was just that i wanted to do this but i couldn't see you know first you do that and then these are the steps it was just a sort of more like a pipe in yeah, like people that said they wanted to be astronauts or something. It was kind of the equivalent of that for me. I guess for me, because I was I was later, 13, 14, I um, just immediately wanted to start making music. I just fell in love with music. I found it the most beautiful escape. And even though I couldn't play an instrument or anything, I just had to start making music. And I was at school with Gary, our guitarist, and... Um, we used to make music together with like toy instruments and stuff. He had a guitar, but um, yeah, with like toy pianos and spoons and stuff. Sadly, none of those recordings are available. I did used to sing along to the tambourine when I was a child around the house and like write little songs and stuff, but um, probably thankfully those aren't available. 
<laughs> this would make a great bonus disc. <laughs> <laughs> what drew you to the base? Um, I don't know, really. Um, I suppose I like the way it kind of, I remember Glenn Matlock saying in some interview how he could kind of subvert or something music, like, because it's kind of underneath sort of working away and doing stuff. Um, maybe I thought it would be something easy to start with, but then I just got completely mesmerised with it. I mean, I found this really brilliant teacher and he got me into Carol Kay, who I'd never heard of. Just like, right, I'm going to teach you how to read music. I'm going to give you all the Carol Kay books. And just when I, you know, he's like, listen to this record, listen to that record, that this is what she sounds like. And then he also um, got me all these sort of classical music sheet things and saying, like, play the melody lines of these on the bass. So it took me in a completely um, different direction because after he um, stopped teaching me, he left England I had another teacher and it was just like really boring sort of play on the beat you know and he was like why are you playing high up the fretboards um this isn't the you know you've got to play it in a very traditional way it was all sort of trying to I don't know like sting or something that's ridiculous <laughs> he'd never heard of Peter Hook he hadn't heard of Peter Hook obviously <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no actually no he certainly hadn't because I brought Peter Hook up, of course. Um, no. So, yeah, let's let's talk about the uh, the time period when you're making between happiness and heartache. You've just come off of chasing promises. Yeah. Actually, I want to pull it back a bit because that that record has my two favorite Breathless songs on it. Compulsion. Oh, really? What are they? Compulsion and Moment by Moment. I remember you telling me that you really like Compulsion in a bar in. <laughs> In New York New City. York. I was yeah. just about to bring that up. And you had a, a good story about that song. I was wondering if you... Did I? Well, I've forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> about an uh, opening well, for My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. What was it? You'd said, uh, did you only play that live once? Oh, my God. I know the story. It's a My Bloody Valentine story. Yes. Um, but, oh, one hand clapping. That was hell. Yes. <laughs> Uh, no, we have played it live a few times. We've definitely played it in Italy, but that might have been after that. Because it's that... a great song to start a set with, actually. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, it doesn't go down well with my bloody Valentine fans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's a shame. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. I'd forgotten about that. But maybe we played it in a very early stage before we'd recorded it. I can't remember the. No, the we had frame. recorded it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I don't think they were that responsive to many of the songs. No, the whole set. It was just uh, there was. I think they thought we were breathe that there was a pop group in England, and oh. I was talking to someone before we played, and he said, "Oh, the part of this pop group called Breathe is supporting tonight," and I think just. Uh, <laughs> people have decided not to like us before we even went on but um yeah i don't know that was very strange that was uh a uh, uh, a very weird experience because it's never been like that before or after yeah because usually when we play compassion there's lots of little heads bobbing around that's what you yeah, like yeah 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 the moment it starts they're immediately yeah dancing around oh that's yeah. good yeah, because it's a great song. I, I didn't understand your story, but that sounded just horrifying. 
It was, that that gig was horrifying. One of the reasons I don't like playing live. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> so was, that uh, happened it just happened in slow motion. It did. And seemed to go on forever. It did. Weirdly, because I don't remember our gigs, but I I do remember that one. It was like sweating blood. <laughs> Where was it? At the Fulham Greyhounds. Yeah. Ah, okay. Have you been there? Are you familiar I, with it? I have not been there, no, but I've heard of it. Yeah. So it must have been pretty early in my bloody Valentine's career, as it was, yeah, it's just like a smallish pub. I don't know. It's quite big. I mean, 500 people. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah. That's decent. And moment by moment, you have that other version that uh, is on a couple EPs, which I love. And it was, uh, you could tell me about that version of it. Oh, yeah, we re-recorded it. Well, actually, that was going to be, when we re-recorded it, because it's on the I Never Know Where You Are, it was actually going to be the A-side, and I Never Know Where You Are, the song itself, was going to be the B-side. That's right, yeah. We re-recorded it with um, Drosten Madden, and, um, but yeah, as it turned out, we um, just loved I Never Know Where You Are, and I guess maybe because we thought that Moment by Moment had already been released yes why did we re-record it do you remember that well obviously weren't happy with an element of it yeah we must have just not been happy with the album version um and um yeah but i I can't remember why we did that and it is because it was eclipsed by i never know where you are which just sort of came together in the studio it was only it wasn't i think it was sort of more or less completely written no it was completely written but then i think I mean, it was quite exciting being in a different studio and it sort of brought out different things. It was a much more live sounding. It was a much more immediate thing. I mean, Gary played his guitar part all the way through because usually there's lots of overdubs. And, yeah, yeah. Overdubs, even not even dubs. Um, and Jocelyn suggested that drum roll at the beginning, which really, really worked. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we were suddenly like, wow, this is, it was almost like listening to somebody else's music and it was yeah Yeah, it was just so fresh actually yeah Yeah, i remember that yeah being very surprised by it oh nice and then it became single the week in melody maker yeah yeah that was nice because i just started college then and i hadn't told the people i was at college with i was in a band and um they just came piling in, waving Melody Maker at me. It was really good. It did my kudos, load of good at college. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yes, um, just staying on that moment by moment version for a minute, just because um, I, I love that version. And it seemed like you guys really liked it too, because not only was it on I Never Know Where You Are, but it's on that four track over and over EP. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a lovely, it's a sort of smoother version. Uh, I know smoother is a very nice word, but it is. uh, uh, Well, maybe less rocky. Yeah, it just sort of came together, less pompous. It's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's something about the feel that, you know, I can't quite put into words, but yeah. Maybe more understated. Yeah, I think it was a more understated version. Hmm. Yeah. 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 And around this time, you have like song titles like this, which repeat 
the word moment by moment over and over wave after wave oh yeah going on there (laughs) just coincidence god only knows what was going on in my head then um i did you know i didn't notice that you i've never noticed it in all this time and all the (laughs) number of times i've written it out and yeah it's true but i am slight i mean it would say I, I, I think I've always been obsessed with time a bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd never realised back then in my 20s that I was. <laughs> but I certainly am obsessed with time now. Um, yeah. Yes, that's a very interesting point. I think about that. All right. So tell me about the time period, like what's going on with the band when you uh, when you started to make the record. Well, I think we start, I mean, we it's sort of made from I never know where you are. Oh no, Flowers Dies the first thing. We'll never know where, no, I never know where you are is the first thing. So that was um 89. And the last things that we recorded that was the main part of it, which is things we did at Blackwing in 91. And it was because I had to look recently through diaries to check copyright and dates and stuff like that. And it's amazing how um, we were recording it in 91, I think in the summer or maybe even autumn, and like it came out at the end of that year. I mean, now, with all the time it takes to press vinyl and everything and all the build-up people need and stuff like that, I mean, you just couldn't do that, sort of record it and then like next month release it, and there it is in the shops. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I mean, we did it in... Three sessions. Yeah. Yeah, I never know where you are. Then we did a couple at um, John Fox's the garden. garden studio, Flowers Die, Clear and Daylight. Always um, was. Well, that's always. Yeah, yeah. And then the remaining ones, we went back to Blackwing, but this time we're taking Drost and Madden with us um, and work there so it's got a kind of the black green sound but there's also his kind of take on yeah yeah very much yeah yeah it's quite different so usually when we worked at Blackwood we would be with John Fryer always yeah always did we have have... well he had assistants and stuff yeah 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 you're right but it was him mainly yeah yeah and uh, uh, John Fryer and Justin have got quite distinctively different approaches ah. to recording, definitely. Though, strangely enough, both of them were recommended to us by Ivo like ages ago. Yeah. We asked, uh, he said, that, you know, these two, because they'd both done stuff with the Cocteau Twins at various stages and the Wolfgang Press and all that kind of thing. I love the Wolfgang Press. <laughs> I like the Wolfgang Press. Well, I. I liked them up to a point, and ah. then I lost interest. I love Standing Up Straight mm. as an album, and um, there was an EP with I'm Coming Home on, which is just wonderful. I yeah. love that song. I listen yeah. to that still, that song, actually, yeah. yeah I've, I've always been a fan of The Great Leveler. Um, that tune has made many mixtape over the years. They, they're a very oh, underrated yeah. band. But yeah, they were great, but when... I was at school. Gary and I loved mass, and so uh, and we used to go to virtually every gig they did, in or around London. Um, and I just liked, I loved mass, and I liked 
it when they evolved into Wolfgang Press. That was, that was great as well. But then I went off and they got a bit too sort of funky and, and, and I don't know, I just lost interest in them. Which is a shame. Uh, Mark Cox is still definitely one of my favourite keyboard players. Um, and I think because we, Gary and I were, we just loved that band so much. I could hear um, in Gary's voice when he sings, I can hear um, the guy from Mass, I've forgotten his name, that went on to, oh, I can't remember his name, not Michael Allen, the other guy um, that was in Renegade Soundwave. Ah, okay. Got his name, but yeah, I hear I they were a massive influence on us, Mass. Actually, we used to go and see Mass and in camera, who were my first uh introduction to the 4AD label, actually. Yeah, oh, cool, I didn't know that. Interesting, yeah, but yeah, I love the way Mark Cox plays keyboard. Nice. You know, he's just got a very simple, repetitive style, which is how I like to play keyboard. <laughs> Yeah, and you were saying about the two different producers you're working with. You also in the press release mentioned that the two different studios had completely different vibes, but they suited the record perfectly for you. Yeah, definitely. Well, Talk yeah, because we were so rehearsing in two different um, studios, and we actually, when we rehearse, chose which song to work on in which. Particularly, do you remember in Brixton? There was that yeah. sort of harsh sound and one on the bloke that ran it was really harsh and aggressive. Everything about it was harsh. And then the other one was the studio we worked in was much softer. I mean, the furnishings were softer. And we, um, yeah, it's I mean, true. you can call it yours came from the harsh. Yeah. So the hardest stuff comes from Brixton and the softest stuff comes from Blackwing. Uh, we used to rehearse in All Hallows Church, which was connected to Blackwing. We didn't actually know. Until we, <laughs> well, that's just so ridiculous. Considering how much we worship 4AD, <laughs> and um, we're rehearsing next to it's part studios. of the same building, basically. We just used a different entrance to get into the rehearsal part, yeah. And we had no idea. And it was only when this lovely studio closed, the rehearsal studio closed down, and we just like moaning. And then we realised, oh yes, Blackwing opening a new studio, a second live room, and then the penny drop. Oh yes. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the cover, Flowers Die. I mean, a cover is very unusual for you. It's it's the only one we've ever done. Yeah. It's the only one we've ever considered doing. So what drew you to it? I think it's it's sort of incompleteness. I mean, it's not like the beautifully polished another girl, another planet, or something like that, which I just wouldn't dare touch. Mm. Oh, the cut. Oh, sorry. No, I was thinking you were talking about, about the artwork. I was looking at the artwork. Just thinking, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, Flowers Die. Yeah, yeah, it was precisely, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think, so, sorry, I butted in, but, um, yeah, so many Only One songs are kind of untouchable because they're Only One songs. But, I, yeah, Flowers Die was was imperfect uh, 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 and i just thought we could do it better <laughs> yeah well, nice don't know about that but uh, yeah do a good take well do it yeah do a good take on it i mean i think an important thing is when you do a cover version and i'm sure everybody says this but you know you have to make it 
your own, make it different in some way. There's no point. Well, there are very few covering it. Very, there are very few good cover versions out there. I mean, I think Grace Jones is somebody that does very good cover versions. Yeah, well, uh, she makes it her own. That's what I mean. That's yeah. what a good some yeah. or it's like Devo doing satisfaction or something. Yeah. But well, this Michael Coyle. Oh, yeah. Pretty good at cover versions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's that one. <laughs> there's that one. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was just it sounded quite raw and I don't know, maybe a bit rough around the edges. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we thought we'd give it a go. Cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, because um, we were all very fond of the only ones at that time. Definitely. Well, I think it, it, they're an amazing band. Well, I think it's the only band we actually all agreed on. Are the only ones with Pink <laughs> Floyd? Because I think I mean, no, you know, it's, it's, true. But it's good that everybody brings in different elements. It's not. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So, like, maybe two people like one band, two like the other, and then it. You know, it's always shifting and changing, but for unanimousness, I think Pink Floyd's <laughs> oh my God, the only on. ones. Sorry about that. Are we... No problem. I'm not going to open the window. Um, Sorry about that. I've left my phone outside now. Cool. I'll, I'll edit that out. <laughs> I, I always find that interesting, like the bands that uh, everyone in a band agrees on, because it's always very unexpected. Like, I would never have guessed the only ones were the one band you guys agreed on. It's it's true, but funny enough, when I was listening to this album recently, because we had to listen to the test pressings, um, I was struck by, I can hear an only one's influence in some of the songs, like you can call it yours, obviously Flowers Die. But uh, something like you can call it yours, and maybe even I never know where you are. I can hear a vague only one's influence. I remember when I was listening back to it, being surprised that oh yeah, I've never noticed that in us before, and I've never. I. Is it a joint thing, or is it like a particular? Yeah, like the guitar or the vocals. It's or... a joint thing. It's the songs. Wow. It's, yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't conscious at the time. In fact, we've never, I've never consciously heard influences or brought stuff in. I mean, that's not true. I mean, I was wanted to sound like um, Amagamba period Pink Floyd, but uh, yeah. But I suppose you just, if you listen to lots of stuff, you can't help but be influenced by it. Yeah. It's just going to permeate into your music anyway. But we always end up sounding like Breathless. So you know, if, even if we set out to do a crowd rock rock song or a, a, or a, you know something, because what we might approach a song is f- from the beat or something. Let's do something with a a crowd rock beat, but it always ends up sounding like breathless. I mean, yeah, it's like um, don't just disappear. That was right. I was. Oh my god, you were I so was, into Hole. Yeah, yeah, well, I still am into Hole, but yeah, <laughs> um, I was really into Hole, and I brought that um, riff to rehearsal and um and it's a great i mean i love the fact that it's a it's got that riff but yeah it still sounds like breath breathless and there's that gentle sort of element to it as well i really like that yeah 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 i was never gonna sing like courtney love (laughs) (laughs) did you try (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, I have tried. No, I didn't try. <laughs> and I've certainly tried. <laughs> I mean, we've certainly had arguments at rehearsals before now, so I could have got, got done an angry vocal. But uh, Gary was Mr. Angry in our band, uh, in terms of vocal sounds. I don't mean, he's very... <laughs> He's a very chilled out boy, but um, yeah. So we were talking about feel, and I noticed that Flowers Die sort of changes the feel of the record. Like for that and Help Me Get Over It, it sort of goes in a different direction. I don't know if you guys noticed this at all, but. Well, uh, you might be right. And I seem to remember Flowers Die wasn't going to be on the album. Ah. And. for some reason, it felt right that it did. What was meant? What, what song was going to be on the album? Something that's never... It's seen the light of day, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, we weren't planning to put Flowers Down on it, um, but it was this song, whatever it was, just wasn't sitting right, and it just made sense to put Flowers Die on. But um, also, yeah, I think I'm very pleased with Flowers Die, and it was just a B-side, and... I think it deserves to be on the album. Yeah, that's the thing with singles, isn't it? They they seem so sort of um, ephemeral. Is yeah. That the way? yeah, just yeah, it's albums that survive time. And yeah, sometimes you want to um, put stuff on albums just to make sure that they don't get forgotten if you're particularly proud of them sort of thing. Yeah, it's a very different thing between, or at least it used to be, between the States and the UK, whereas you guys would often have non-album singles, where that was kind of unheard of <laughs> when I was growing up. But it made it cool. Yeah, that, I, think you know, it yeah start- I think it might be a European thing. Cause, um, I remember Peter, the first time we put a single on an album, some Italian really being very narky about it to me. Well, saying we're ripping them off. Yeah, just saying it's not fair. You've put this song out before. Why have you put it on an album? And it's because I really like it and I don't want it to just disappear. But yeah, because um, working at Virgin, I remember all those things like Stairway to Heaven and stuff. Like Zeppelin didn't release any singles in England. And then all the Japanese imports and the American yeah. imports. Yeah, so I think it just works very differently um, around the world. Mm. But as like from a record collector point of view, it was cool then that you had more stuff to search out. Marvelous, yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is true. Well, I suppose in like in the mid eighties, EPs were such a big thing. Like four track, twelve inches, was such mm. a big thing, and I wish they were again. Um, but people don't seem to know how to market them so well now. Like where to? You know, do they go with the albums? Do they go with the singles? Do they get reviewed with the albums, etc., oh, yeah, etc.? Yeah. So they seem to have fallen by the wayside. But we did lots of um, four-track, twelve inches. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Though, and uh, yeah, I like EPs. I've forgotten how much. Yeah, Cocktail Twins. Do you remember they did Echoes in a Shallow Bay and Tiny Dynamite? Was kind of the peak of their career. I thought. Well, actually, no, I'm not sure about that, but I do love those EPs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes things don't gel as an album or don't sit as an album, but sit perfectly as a full track thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So speaking of which, uh, tell me about everything I see. 
which wasn't on the album, but is a bonus track. Yeah, that was the B side to "Don't Just Disappear," was it? Yeah, I, I mean a similar thing. Uh, it's exactly that. It's exactly that thing. I think uh, it's just a song that, um, over time, we've thought that was such a good song, and it was just a B side. Um, it would be so nice to be able to. Um, uh, it, 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 I, I'm amazed it was a B side because when I listened to it. When I listened to it again recently, I was just so pleasantly surprised by it. It might, maybe it should have been a bit shorter or something. That might have been the problem. But um, I just think it's a beautiful song. It's so lush and, yeah, it, it shouldn't have just been thrown away as a B-side. Hmm. Yeah. And like what I was saying before that, you know, Flowers Die and Help Me Get Over It, this sort of feel sort of shifted. I felt like listening to it, with everything I see at the end, it sort of brought it back feel wise to earlier in the album. So it, it sort of worked. Oh yeah. That's that good. Way. That's good. Yeah. But I mean, that is weird because Flower Stein was recorded at a different studio quite a lot earlier than Help Me Get Over It. Because Help Me Get Over It was recorded at the at Black Ring. So maybe it's just brilliant placing on our. <laughs> that's, yeah. I'm sure that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're very guitar driven songs those two songs aren't they mm. well maybe gary was inspired after john perry came down and played guitar oh my god he was so inspired it was like father <laughs> chris gary couldn't he was he yeah he, he he i bet he remembers that day yeah till the day he dies he, he was um well, he played very well in front of john perry though you think he'd have been terrified because i um, I don't think I don't remember him playing. I thought it was John Perry that played. Because I thought, oh, well, do you think the guitar was already recorded? Yeah, yeah, we recorded everything. I mean, oh, he just came for the John mix. Perry down to mix, and then John Perry was saying, "Oh, uh, oh I can yeah. really hear another guitar," but he wasn't saying, "And oh, I'm going to play it." So uh, we had to kind of coax him, which was kind of very nice that he wasn't, you know, just saying, "Well, I'm going to play this guitar on the song that I, you know, from my band." Um, so yeah, we kind of coaxed him into. Oh, would you like to maybe have a go and play it? Yeah, you're right. I remember and that. And then, and he did. And that, yeah, that's the moment that Gary was. And I just remember Gary sat next to him watching him play. Yeah, yeah. it was very sweet. <laughs> very lovely. That's pretty cool that in only one mixed and played on your cover of the only ones. Yeah, yeah it's no, great. I mean, we were trying, we had to, um, it's always polite to get permission to do a cover version. So that's how we got in touch with John Perry in the first place. And um, and it came from there. I can't remember whether he offered to come and mix or whether we asked him. It's so long ago, but I definitely remember the, him coming to the session. Yeah. At the time, though, we couldn't credit him on the album purely because I guess he had problems with CBS at the time. They were still signed, um, even though they'd split up. Yeah, I don't know what the reason was, but this time around I, I got in touch with him and... So would it be all right to credit you? And he was you know, delighted and you know, wants a copy of the album and everything. So Yeah, he was very positive about it as yeah. well. Very yeah. positive, yeah. Oh nice. Yeah. So I want to ask you about uh Clearer Than Daylight. I always like when there's not a title track, but there is like a title line. Oh for yeah. An album, which is very cool. You did that on Compulsion as well. As chasing yes, I there. think yeah, I like that. I mean, I do like the 
What's the mind in compulsion? Yeah, well, I guess it must. Oh no, it's not. It's um, chasing promises. There's yeah. the line in the song. Well, yeah, we do that. We do that. I, well, that's when we're looking for titles. I send the the others the lyric sheet, and uh, we look for titles that way. Actually, because I don't like title tracks. So if there's ever a song that is a title track, um, the album gets a title, and we have to find another title for the song, and that's <laughs> nice. happened quite a few times. So it does. It sort of happens that way, but yeah, I like that. Yeah, so Clear and Daylight has the line somewhere between happiness and heartache. It's got a lovely melody, Clear and Daylight, actually. Again, it was, it, you know, not having listened to this album for a long time. I mean, I do occasionally listen to our stuff, but um, yeah, I was, I was very pleasantly surprised at how fresh and accomplished it seemed to me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> same here. Yeah. 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 Was there anything else that stood out that we haven't mentioned yet? I have forgotten how much I love You Can Call It Yours. I knew I loved it. I never know where you are. I just, yeah, it's, 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 it's a good album all the way through, which is, yeah, I think so. But yeah, no, I mean, I, no, I, mean I, I do really like it. I, probably this and... Um, Green to Blue are probably my favourites. Yeah, Green to Blue, this, and I like... Um, see Those Colours Fly. See Those Colours Fly, the new album, the new of course. <laughs> new album? <laughs> yeah, we've got a new album coming. Well, it should be coming out at the end of the year, but well, I don't think it's going to quite make it. No. It's all mixed and done. Oh, apart from one track. Um, but yeah, we've got a new album... That will be out at the beginning of next year, I imagine. Well, hopefully. I mean, this thing about vinyl now taking five months to press oh, right. does yeah. kind of throw everything, throw a bit of a spanner in the works for everything. But yes, as soon as one can get it out there, it will be out there. Yeah. Yeah, did you? I like Blue Moon. Oh, yeah, no, I do like Blue Moon. <laughs> did you have any hiccups with the vinyl for this one? <laughs> uh, we haven't got it yet, so um, oh, <laughs> that remains to oh, be shit. seen. No, that's all right. It's yeah, as, as I mean, it's as planned so far. We'll see. Well, that's why it was um, delayed by three weeks. Um, but yeah, the the EU lots of paperwork that's a bit terrifying that we have to deal with, um, and obviously the. Yeah, I mean, it's just hiccup after hiccup because the pressing plants, the backlog because of COVID, apparently American companies are getting their stuff pressed in Europe because all the pressing plants, are, I don't know if this is your experience or whatever, in America. So, I mean, yeah, it's just crazy, this five-month thing. So people I know have been like getting their test pressings for Christmas like months ago and stuff. I mean, you just have to really, really plan ahead. Yeah, I uh, I turned 45 this year and I was thinking I should release the seven inch <laughs> and then it just wasn't a possibility to, you know, have it back <laughs> while I'm oh, 45. Brilliant yeah. idea. Why didn't we think of that? <laughs> That's a fantastic I've idea. I've been to people's 45 fifth birthday where everybody brings a 45. Oh, really? I haven't. There you go. 
I love that yeah. idea. And I was going to do it had we not, you know, been in lockdown. <laughs> yeah, it did spoil a lot of things. But also, I think, yeah, because Record Store Day is coming up as well. So all the pressing plants are geared to that. So it's a build up of things. But um, so, yes, so we were planning to bring this tentatively titled See Those Colours Fly album out the end of this year. But um, yeah, next year, beginning, hopefully. And Kramer mixed the new one? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, no, I mean, he did an amazing, amazing job because it was recorded at, I mean, a lot of it was recorded at home um, and it was recorded in, some of the songs were started in other studios and he just makes it all sound so yeah, like cohesive, it's... like it was all just recorded at the same time in the same place, the same sort of acoustics, atmosphere, whatever. No, I, it's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, when we listen back, when I listen back to the rough mix, it's just you know to check something or whatever, um, and then with his next to it, it's like, wow, where did that cathedral come from? Yeah, he has a he has a lovely sound. He really does. And oh, it was also so nice because I think you know a lot of the songs, some of them were quite old. I mean, it's have, I don't know how many years it's been since the last album, but. Um, it was just so nice to just send the tracks to somebody else for them to mix and make something out of it. It was, it was really nice. I mean, we it's not a complete shot in the dark because obviously he did, I think it was three songs on um, Green to Blue, so we knew what we to like expect. What did. Yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, we knew it was going to be good. Um, but I think you and Gary were quite surprised at how to me it sounded exactly how I imagined it would sound in my head. It's like Kramer's can sort of tap into my subconscious. And wow, that's because yeah, to the first time I heard it, I was just confused. Yeah, and so I, I liked it, but I was confused because things were happening, weren't happening that I was expecting to happen, and things were happening that I didn't even remember playing. And um so yeah, but then the second time it was just amazing. Yeah, very good. Yeah, excellent. Oh, and I wanted to ask you the uh, between happiness and heartache. It's coming out on heartache pink vinyl. Yes, <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, it had to be some sort of celebration for mm. thirty years. <laughs> some celebration of heartache. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, notice we didn't go for the happiness. <laughs> happiness yellow or whatever. <laughs> Sunshine yellow. Yeah, yeah. I did notice that. <laughs> yeah, you're not alone. But I mean, I think, yeah, vinyl's become such a, it's got to be so special and something, it's just a tactile thing, lots of nice pictures. You know, the whole thing's got to be a real, almost like a, opening an art book or something. Mm. Um, as the sort of antithesis to um, downloads. Yes, exactly. So we tried to make it as beautiful as we could and tried to get the pictures, photographs from the era and stuff like that. Yeah, there's unseen photos, right? I don't know about unseen, unavailable. We've <laughs> ne- we never put our pictures on our albums ever. In the there might have been, you might have seen them in a review or something. One of them you've probably seen a review, the other I don't think you would have, um, but definitely, definitely not available before 
and um, and yeah, Kevin Westenberg got really excited and said, "No, no, no! I've got to re you know things have come on since I took those photographs. I've got to rescan them and um, and he did an amazing job. I mean, the cover, well, all the photos, particularly the cover, has just got so much more depth now. Nice. Yeah. So it was well, July. I, say, um, I finished article. What was that? Sorry. Is July sixteenth still the release date? All as things. As far as I know, I mean, unless <laughs> unless I get some terrible phone calls saying the records are stuck at customs and whatever, but yeah, I mean that is. That's in two weeks. That's fine. Glad <laughs> <laughs> you're so calm. Optimism. There you go. I mean, I know when the distributors need them by, so don't worry. Yeah. So that's all my questions. Do you guys have anything else you want to add about uh, the album or anything else coming up? Well, we've managed to plug the new album already, but we can plug that again. <laughs> um, I can't. I'm just looking at the sleeve myself. Yeah, Eric, he's worked on it as well. Um. Well, I think there's just people that assisted on it. Eric owns the studio. Sorry, we're going off on a Okay, yeah, sorry. No, I can't think. uh, The original um, purple and blue and pink sleeve and looking at the details. Um, But no, no, we're just looking forward to um, releasing our new album, which I think people might be a bit surprised by because it's quite different sounding in some ways i mean there are no real drums on it it's all programmed drums which we've never done before oh yeah ari's found a new a new um talent well it's more like necessity is the mother of invention because our, our um drummer had a really bad road accident oh. and um so we decided to program drums rather than work with another drummer yeah. So oh. I was forced to. I mean, it's all very, it's very basic. I do like basic sort of Mo Tucker, low type drums. So thankfully, it didn't have to be very complicated. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's really nice to see you. You're welcome. You yeah, lovely to speak to you again. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. It's good to catch up with Ari and Dominic. The vinyl is in, so be sure to get yourself a copy of Between Happiness and Heartache and give their other records a spin, too, if you're unfamiliar. All good stuff. Like I said, keep your ears peeled for some special Young Southpaw announcements coming up soon. And if you'd like to order my Nick Cave's Bar memoir, there are links up at augstone.com, A-U-G-S-T-O-N-E. And it's available everywhere online anyway. If you like this episode and would like to share, rate, review it, that'd be much appreciated. As always, thanks for listening. I'm going to play you out now with one of my favorites from Between Happiness and Heartache. This is Over and Over. Deep
Tell me. 